0: Harukatawantok, you a Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific, Mikoroi Hawkins. Coming up first... We're here, we're a trusted partner for the Pacific. We want to continue to work closely with Pacific countries. Aotearoa's new Prime Minister says he's committed to strengthening New Zealand's Pacific ties. Also... We must
1: always remember that if conflict were to break out in the Indo-Pacific, it would be catastrophic.
0: Australia's Foreign Minister warns of a more dangerous and volatile region... And
2: It is definitely possible to challenge this decision by Parliament to suspend him for two
0: years. We catch up on the latest news regarding the suspension from Parliament of Samoa's former Prime Minister. Aotearoa New Zealand's new Prime Minister has agreed to look at an overstayer petition that was launched by Pacific Community Leaders almost three years ago. The petition calls for pathways to residency to be established for Pacifica overstayers. In a brief interview with Lydia Lewis, Chris Hipkins was questioned over a lack of action by the government over the issue.
3: The government says it is committed to upholding a fair rules-based immigration system and delivering on the goals of the Immigration Rebalance – But it admitted progressing an amnesty for overstayers would be a considerable undertaking and regardless of which group of people it may be extended to, it would take time to progress and would require legislative change. Prime Minister Hipkins says he is committed to Pacific communities in Aotearoa and will look into the calls made in the petition.
4: I want to make sure that we have a country in New Zealand where Pacific people are respected, they have a place, uh, and where we continue to maintain a really strong relationship with their home countries. Will you
3: lead the charge in making changes and make sure that they can call New Zealand their home, that overstayers don't need to look over their backs? I
4: haven't had an opportunity to look at that particular you at issue it? yet, but I, I absolutely intend to look at it.
3: The Prime Minister has also reaffirmed the country's commitment to the Pacific. It follows Australia's Foreign Affairs Minister calling on all countries to play their part in preventing a war in the Indo-Pacific region amid increasing tensions between the United States and China. While Mr Hipkins says he cannot comment on the specifics as he has not listened to her speech, he did say New Zealand's relationship with the Pacific remains strong.
4: My message to the Pacific is uh, probably the same as Jacinda Ardern's, which is, you know, we're here, we're um, a trusted partner for the Pacific. Um, We want to continue to work closely with Pacific countries. And we're always at the other end of the phone if they've got things that they want to talk about or they've got areas where they want to work with us on. Um, And we'll be really focused on strengthening our own relationship with Pacific countries.
3: Meanwhile, when asked if he would be attending this year's Pacific Islands Forum Leaders Meeting, he had this to say.
4: I can't make a decision on that until I've got a date, but certainly it is a priority for me. It will depend on logistics.
3: The Pacific Islands Forum Secretary-General says the PIF leaders are looking at a forum date in October after the UN General Assembly in New York.
0: Australia's Foreign Affairs Minister says the Indo-Pacific region has become more dangerous and volatile. Penny Wong, speaking at King's College University in London, urged all countries to ask how it could use its national power to avert a catastrophic conflict in the region. She says the Indo-Pacific is home to the largest military buildup in the world in the post-war period.
1: North Korea conducted more than 60 ballistic missile launches last year. Last August, five Chinese ballistic missiles were reported to have fallen in Japan's exclusive economic zone. We must always remember that if conflict were to break out in the Indo-Pacific, it would be catastrophic for humanity.
0: Caleb Fotheringham talks with Democracy Project geopolitical analyst Jeffrey Miller about Ms Wong's speech and asks if he thought the threat of war in the region is real.
1: This was a speech to generate headlines. It was a headline-grabbing speech. There are ways in which diplomats can talk to play down matters. This was not one of these. It was it was a bold speech. It was an attention-grabbing speech in many ways. They had lots of very quotable lines, ranging from colonisation and calling on the UK to remember some of these more uncomfortable aspects of their past and trying to guilt-trip, in a way, the United Kingdom into becoming more involved in the Indo-Pacific but also these lines about the potentially catastrophic conflict and the risk of a conflict in the Indo-Pacific. I think she's trying to get the UK to stay on board despite all the economic troubles that the United Kingdom is facing at the moment. Remember, they're likely to head into recession uh, this year and to be the worst-performing G7 member. And it would be tempting for Rishi Sunak, the new Prime Minister over there, to, to undertake a process of retrenchment. The UK has become more involved in the the Pacific over the last two or three years under Boris Johnson and Liz Truss. They really sought to become more of a a part of this region as part of the global Britain strategy post-Brexit. Rishi Sunak is cut from a different cloth and he may be tempted to save money and by retrenching from some of these grander plans in the Indo-Pacific. Penny Wong is spelling out the reasons why the UK should stay involved and and should not run away from the Indo-Pacific.
2: Do you think that she was overstating the possibility of a war in the Indo-Pacific region?
1: I think she was being very bold. The speech, as I said, was designed to grab headlines. I think there is a real risk of a catastrophic conflict in the Indo-Pacific, and I think we need to do everything to, to stop that happening. I think we need to prevent war, It's the way that you go about that. And some of these things that she's talking about in the speech, I think, are are really positive. Uh, The need to increase diplomacy, for example. I think we could do with a lot more diplomacy at the moment. And to to her credit, Penny Wong has done some of that. She met with uh, Wang Yi, the Chinese foreign minister in Beijing, Uh, just before Christmas, for example. We have actually an upswing towards diplomacy in the last few months or so, and I'd love to see that continue. I think it's really important to to use uh, words uh, rather than weapons and to try and avoid a greater conflict. At the same time, it's clear that she sees the military strategy as really a big part of the plan. And uh, the speech was also about reinforcing the commitments that the United Kingdom has made in hard security with the likes of AUKUS. And and she's calling on the UK to do even more than, it, than it's doing already and not to be tempted to, to save money and, and stay home.
2: It was such a strongly worded speech, as you said. It was a headline-grabbing speech. Does she know something else that the rest of the public might not know about how real this risk of a war is?
1: Well, look, as foreign minister, she will always be privy to more information than you or I would be. I don't think she's got anything particular that she's thinking about. I think she's thinking in in, in general terms. I think you've got to realise that the speech really was carefully crafted for a a British audience, and it was designed to be interpreted by British foreign policy elites and to try and get them on board and keep them on board with being in the Indo-Pacific.
2: Another thing that she said was, our region is home to the largest military buildup anywhere in the world in the post-war period. What time period is she referring to? And is the Pacific, Indo-Pacific region the place with the largest military buildup?
1: She's referring to the post-World War II period, and I think this is a way of trying to bring this home to British audiences, to say, look, this is the biggest threat the world's faced in 70 years, which is a pretty bold statement to make, given you know we went through the Cold War period as well. But she's saying, look, there's an arms race on, there's a competition on, you know, you've know, you got to get serious about it. I think in some way she's trying to globalize in the, the threats in the Indo-Pacific and she's saying, look, it will be catastrophic for the world. It's not something that you can sit out, not something that you can say, oh, well, look, this doesn't concern us. She's trying to really paint a picture of a global calamity, a global disaster, a global catastrophe. And yes, every country in the Indo-Pacific is increasing their militaries. That's what's so depressing at the moment. There's millions and billions of dollars Going into armies, you know, this is money that's not going into schools, hospitals, roads, climate change impacts. um, You know, it's going into high tech war making machines, and it's just the climate we're in, sadly. And uh, everyone is looking at what everyone else is doing, and everyone's spending more on weapons. And I think there's been a real reassessment since Russia invaded Ukraine about the likelihood of a war in the Indo-Pacific, and you saw that last year, a lot of people were very jumpy over
0: Taiwan and uh, over China. Samoa's two suspended MPs, including a former Prime Minister, back in court challenging their two-year suspension, the Human Rights Protection Party leader and former Prime Minister, Toilai Sailile Lile and Party Secretary, Lealai Pule Rimoni Ayafi, were back in court on Monday. Our Parliamentary Privileges and Ethics Committee last year cited the pair for contempt of Parliament after the Supreme Court found them guilty of contempt of court but did not find them. Tiosana Suiswiki spoke to Auckland University Law Lecturer Foi Maono Dylan Asafo and began by asking him if dismissing the suspension is possible.
2: It is definitely possible to challenge this decision um, by Parliament to suspend them for two years. And I actually do anticipate that their court challenge against their suspension will be successful. um, Because, in my view, while Parliament does technically have the ability to suspend MPs for whatever length they see fit under Parliament's standing orders, a two year suspension is too excessive and actually engages constitutional rights of voters to elect who they want to see in Parliament. Um, This is because two years is basically 40% of a parliamentary term. So you're basically removing their ability to be heard, to have their interests represented in Parliament for such a significant period of time. So I do hope um, and um, believe that the Supreme Court will find in their favour.
4: So in terms of leadership, I mean, where does this leave HRPP now?
2: Yeah, so there was another concerning development just last week where Parliament um, did make amendments towards standing orders to appoint a new leader of opposition. Um, Basically, they introduced a rule that if a leader is suspended for longer than six months, then this means that a new leader can automatically be appointed within the party. I think that this is concerning because it undermines the opposition's ability to govern over its own party matters, where they should be able to determine and vote on whoever their new leader is, if their leader has been suspended, according to their own internal processes, rather than having it dictated by Parliament's standing orders.
1: So
4: are there any more legal options for Salele and Ayafe?
2: I think it is important for them to challenge not only the suspension, but the recent amendments to the standing orders in court. Um, so that is an option that's available to them. And I do believe that it is a clear constitutional issue, um, an argument for the courts to resolve, um, because unfortunately, in taking into account these recent amendments and the wider political context, it does seem um, that the fast-led government are using um, the suspensions but the recent amendments for political purposes um, in bad faith in order to weaken the opposition for their own political gain. Um, so this is an issue which impacts all Samoans even though tensions remain high between the two parties and their supporters. It's important that all Samoans are concerned about this use of power because while some may agree or be in favour of HRPP being punished in this way. It, it does set a concerning precedent for some more moving forward. So it's important that the court clarifies what is allowed and what isn't allowed in terms of parliament suspensions and amendments to standing orders.
4: So with the suspension and, um, you know, the, both men challenging the suspension, is it possible, would it effectively end their political careers?
2: I do believe um, if we're thinking realistically about what all of these uh, moves by the fast government add up to, it does seem like that they are trying to purposely um, get um, Epa and Leala to resign, um, to remove um, and vacate their seats um, through other indirect ways, um, because of course those two leaders don't want to vacate or resign on, on their own accord. Um, so it does seem to be the intention, if we are thinking honestly and in good faith uh, about these recent developments, that that is what the fast-led government is essentially doing.
0: That's specific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us for free to your device from Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Luke me Whala next time more.